0: In the middle of a long series on Second Corinthians, but we're taking a, <clears throat> a seven-week break to uh, do another little series on the the epistles of Jesus. And um, whether you were whether you know, many people are not aware of the fact that we actually have in the New Testament seven epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, dictated to the Apostle John written to seven churches in Asia and they're found in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. And uh, as we compare these letters to one another, we see that these seven churches are in very different situations from one another. Some are doing pretty well, they're in pretty good shape. Others are dangling off the cliff. And there's actually a symmetric pattern to their condition. The first and the last of the seven churches are not doing very well. So much so that they're told that if they don't repent, their lampstand will be removed. That's number one and seven. The second and sixth churches, second and second to the last, are commended without any rebuke whatsoever. And then the three in the middle are mixed. They're both commended for some things and rebuked for others. I found that helpful to keep in mind because I, it gets all muddled in my head. Today we come to the second and the shortest of these seven letters of Jesus. The letter to the church at Smyrna, which, along with Philadelphia, are the only two letters completely absent of rebuke. So we begin with reading the letter, Revelation chapter two verses verse eight, and to the church and sorry, and to the angel of the church. In Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, as I said last week, we're not going to go through these letters verse by verse and try to explain everything that's in them which is pretty much what we're doing in 2 in Corinthians so I'm not um, against doing that but in these we're looking at one main theme that's represented in each letter and the theme of this letter is persecution and fear so let's first think about persecution persecution These letters are the latest indication we have of what kinds of things the church was dealing with at the end of the first century. And I take take it, Revelation, as having been written at the very end of the first century, which I think is the majority of opinion. There's a lot here about what the church was like. And most of the temptations of the various churches which are addressed in these letters, are temptations to give in to the pressures of the society around them. And sure enough, this has been one of the great struggles of the church down through the ages. The pressure from the world has been intense ever since the beginning. So much so that those who didn't capitulate to the pressure find themselves in great danger. And it turns out that with a few seemingly minor adjustments in each generation, the truth of Christ can be cleaned up in such a way that not a major offense will be caused to the world. But the church in Smyrna was not one of those churches willing to adjust the truth. They would not budge. They were being what some people would call rigid and unyielding. They refused to compromise, and it was causing them quite a few problems, as we can read in this epistle. Christians in some other churches were finding ways to compromise in order to stay in the good graces of the government and of their neighbors. But here in Smyrna, it seems, they were preferring Christ to the acceptance of the world. And so they were experiencing three kinds of persecution as a result of their standing firm. They were experiencing persecution at the hands of the Jews. That's what verse 9 is all about. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In Jesus' mind, the true Jews were those who embraced him as their Messiah. But many Jews did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. And that's what he's talking about here. He's referring to them as those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. But they also experienced persecution at the hands of the Romans. The Roman emperor... Required everyone in his empire, except the Jews, to pay him homage, to call him Lord, and to sacrifice to him. And refusing to do so would put you in danger of punishment. And And that's why the Christians were kept safe for a little while, as long as they were thought of as Jews. But as soon as they got distinguished from the Jews, then they were in trouble. And the third thing is that they received persecution at the hands of the locals in Smyrna. You see, back then society was religious and every area, every city had its own little religion, local gods, and it was expected of each person who lived there, that they would worship these local gods, and they all believed in more than one god, so there's no contradiction in moving from one city to another and participating in the religion. This was just part of being a part of the community, a part, even in a part of your profession, because there were guilds of each of these crafts that they, that these... Uh, of their jobs, and they these guilds were infected with this religion as well. And if you're unwilling to participate in the religious life of the community, it was considered unpatriotic and disloyal. And many times you'd be blacklisted or your business would be boycotted. And this means that if you're unwilling to engage in pay, pagan worship activities... You could easily lose your livelihood. And this is why Jesus acknowledges their poverty. I know your poverty. Their poverty was likely a result of their persecution. They were poor, but they were rich because they had Christ. And so Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. In verse 9. So the persecution of Christians in Smyrna was very severe. Opposition to the gospel was so fierce that martyrdom looked like a real possibility. And so Jesus writes them in the face of this. And what does he tell them? Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. A most remarkable command, don't you think? Do not fear. Jesus is telling them not to be afraid in the face of imprisonment, torture, and capital punishment. How can Jesus expect us Not to be afraid in the face of such things. Well, here's the answer. They are not to fear the coming persecution because their lives and destinies are in the hands of one who already experienced persecution, even unto death, and yet overcame it through resurrection. All he's asking them to do is what he did. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The true Christian should not be afraid of persecutions because they are divine tests, as it says in this passage. Even though the enemy may seem scary and dangerous, ultimately, even the enemy is in the hands of, of the one who is so much bigger than the enemy. Now, in the past I have used a diagram a few times and I wanted to I want to go through that now because it fits into this uh letter so perfectly. So I have the first picture put up now is that possible? Okay, there it took me a long time to draw. Oh, no just kidding. Um that is you and me. And we don't look particularly small or big, just there and happy, or at least so it seems. However, and that's how we are when we're just, it's just us. But then when you introduce a scary-looking foe or a dangerous uh, circumstance that changes the picture, and then we move to this. There we are and there's our problem or our adversary and it's and then we're we're feeling scared and we're feeling frightened and fear begins to pump through our veins and now what does jesus say you know this is the circumstance that they're facing and he says don't be afraid and why, what do you mean? Don't be afraid. They're going to kill us. Well, he's, he, uh, this is why you don't have to be afraid. You see the third picture. That's God's big toe. And you see, when you see the big toe, it changes your perspective on the rest of the picture. The the adversary looks so scary and so intimidating, but when God's big toe shows up, it's like he's nothing. And that's how he can say, don't be afraid. Now, if you leave God out of the picture, of course, it looks very scary. But when you bring God into the picture, hey, it's not scary at all. In light of this picture... Urging them to be afraid makes sense. Is persecution the big thing? No, Jesus is the big thing. Is poverty the big thing? No, Jesus is the big thing. Is rejection or ridicule the big thing? No, Jesus is the big thing. Is death the big thing? No, Jesus is the big thing. Is the devil the big thing? Not even that. As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Jesus is the big thing. You see, fear causes all kinds of problems when we we experience it because we don't view the mighty power of God When we're afraid, we're vulnerable to all kinds of compromise and sin. If you're afraid of losing your job, you're likely to give in to unethical activities that your job asks you to perform. If you're afraid of your boyfriend breaking up with you or making fun of you, you give in to him to do things you know you shouldn't do, And you really really don't want to do. If you're afraid of getting left out or ostracized, you stay quiet about Christ among people in your life who desperately need to hear the gospel. You see, you can't love someone if you fear them. You can't love someone if you fear them. Fear makes you think about yourself. Love makes you fear about the other person. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4:18. And yet, we're so afraid. We're afraid of rejection, we're afraid of ridicule, we're afraid of pain, and we're afraid of death. The Christians of Smyrna were about to feel the hammer of persecution coming down on them. They'd already experienced it to some extent, but it was clear that it's going to get worse. Why them more than some of the other churches? Perhaps it's because they were being more faithful and refusing to compromise. Remember when the 12 spies were sent into the land by Moses to spy out the land of Canaan and come back before that they were going to conquer the promised land. And they came back and they said, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And here, look at some of the amazing fruit that we brought. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. That's the relatives of Goliath or giants. And then Caleb jumps up and he says, Let us go at once and occupy it, for we're well able to overcome it. But the other said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. The land is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them too. And so Moses said, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. It's interesting, isn't it, that he actually says, do not rebel. In other words, it's rebellion to, be, to give in to your fears. To, to forget that God is much bigger than your problems. The Israelites didn't listen to Moses, of course, but began to try to arrange a return to Egypt. Amazingly, they had seen the power of God deliver them from Egypt, but now they were in a panic and want to go back there as if it's a place of safety for them. And so God let the whole generation die in the wilderness, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And I think their story is well summarized by the title of Ed Welsh's book When People Are Big and God Is Small. When people are big and God is small. That was their real problem, wasn't it? They were so impressed by the size of the people, they forgot how big God is. But not so the church of Smyrna. The believers of Smyrna were standing firm. You know, we actually have an ancient letter written less than 100 years after this letter was written probably. Probably that tells the story of what happened with one of these believers in Smyrna, who is most likely alive at this time. One of the best known of all Christian martyrs was a native of Smyrna, this very city. His name is Polycarp. And it seems that when this letter was written, not only was he a member of the church of Smyrna, but its young pastor discipled and ordained by the Apostle John himself who wrote the book of Revelation. Surely Polycarp had read this letter many times that Jesus had penned to the church at Smyrna and pondered its message. Likely it was a source of strength for him when his hour of trial came some 60 years later. I want to read just a portion of what happened, as paraphrased by John Stott. When they came to arrest Polycarp, he made no attempt to flee. Then, as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can come to you, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? But Polycarp refused. They brought him before the proconsul, who addressed him, Respect your years, swear by the genius of Caesar, and again, Swear and I will release you, revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Angry Jews and Gentiles began to gather wood for the pile. Polycarp stood by the stake, asking them not to fasten him to it, and prayed, O Lord Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day an hour of of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but as the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering, a soldier put an end to his misery with a sword. He was faithful even unto death as Jesus had exhorted him and the others to be. He was faithful even unto death as Jesus had exhorted him and the others to be. But it's only because he knew that God was big. And in comparison, all the dangers and threats that come from people are small. You know, the Israelites who refused to face their enemies because they were too big, they did not receive the promised land. They did not enter in. But the next generation was given a second chance about 40 years later. And this time under the leadership of Joshua and God spoke to Joshua about fear and about the need for courage before they were going to go into the promised land. In the beginning in the first chapter of Joshua God says this, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times he exhorts to be strong and courageous, and then he gives the reason why they should be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you believe, do we believe that God is with us wherever we go, that the mighty God is with us? Do do we believe that we're rich even if we're poor? Even if everything we have is taken away, we're still rich. The temptation to give in in our day doesn't usually come with someone putting a gun to our head and saying, "Deny Christ, or I'm going to shoot you." It's much more subtle than that. And in this generation, in this place, Satan doesn't seem to want us to be recognize that he is trying to trip us up. But he's in it all. It may be a temptation to keep silent. to to avoid ridicule it may be isolating yourself from people who don't like what you believe it may be conforming to the way the world thinks without doing the study of God's word to see what it says fear is often the thing that drives us in things like this we're afraid to be that guy that guy that People roll their eyes when he walks by. The guy everybody wants to avoid. And because of that fear so often, we are cowards. You know, in Revelation 21, John is describing the lake of fire. And he's talking about who is going into the lake of fire. And he lists a lot of the usual suspects. The faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. But one thing on the list is shocking to us. The cowardly. The cowardly. The cowardly, you see, don't really get the power of God. God may be their working theory in life, but he's not their living reality. The part for me, I never knew you, is what Jesus will say. And that implies, not only did I never know you, but you never knew me. You never knew me. but even those who do get the power of god that is they they've seen it they grasp it it's still for them something that they have to cultivate an awareness of because we forget so easily now how do you keep the fires of fear from scorching your heart when scary things arise in your life it's right here in this passage In uh, numbers that I was reading he tells Joshua you shall meditate on this book day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and have good success the Bible keeps telling us what a great God we have how big and mighty he is how sufficient he is in all things But, you know, just having read it sometime in the past or hearing it on Sundays, we need to put it before us all the time and be reminded every day what a big God we have and hear its call to trust in him, even in spite of the things that seem to be crashing in our lives all around us. It's an amazing letter. Short but amazing. Here are people about to face death, and Jesus says, Fear not. And now we come to the table of our Lord where we celebrate weekly His death, His atoning death, His redeeming death on behalf of sinners and we receive these elements as, a toque, as an expression of our receiving what he has done for us. So let us now come and humble ourselves before him in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, these elements before us are very small but we know that they represent a very big thing that you did. And Lord, we know that the nature of things in this world is that we walk by faith and not by sight. That we're told about how great you are, but a lot of times we don't see it in our lives. But you've called us. To believe what you tell us and to trust in your word and not have to see it for ourselves. We come now, O oh Lord, to this table in this frame of mind. And we take, O oh Lord, this gift as an enormous one, the greatest gift we've ever been given better than if we were given a new house. And we pray, O Lord, that we would cherish and take hold of this gift and never let it go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.